is good, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Fundamism Podcast. I am your host, Paul J. Long, and I am sitting here, as always, at Charlie Hustle's headquarters, sponsor of the Fundamism Podcast. They've been with us from the jump. If you haven't learned or checked out Charlie Hustle's apparel line, please go to charliehustle.com. They have some amazing attire out there. They just dropped the Fundamism and Charlie Hustle <clears throat> collabo shirt, What's Good? So if you want to learn more about that, go to fundamism.com. Now, I'm excited every time we get the opportunity to connect with our listeners. And we always have amazing guests. And you know I'm a very excitable guy, but few individuals have given me the excitement of the guests that we have today. And that's former KC mayor and first ever female mayor of KC, Kay Barnes. How are you doing, Kay? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Oh, I'm so stoked to have you. So, Kay, I'm struggling not calling you Miss Barnes. I'm telling you. I'm gonna, you got to call me Kay. All right. I got you, Kay. <laughs> all right. So, Kay, you are uh, a trailblazer here in the Kansas City area. Uh, you are an individual that appears to just be a beacon of light. When you walked into Charlie Hustle today, you just carried about you an energy. And that always, whenever I meet folks like that, it reminds me of the fundamentalism concept, the fundamentals of a fun and optimistic lifestyle. So the first question that we start every single podcast with is, what do you do for fun, ma'am? I love to read almost mm. anything. I play golf. I love to get together with friends and family for dinner. Beautiful. And uh, just have a good time talking. I mentioned that I love to read, and I have a little bit of an addiction, which I probably shouldn't admit, but I've already <laughs> done that publicly. I love people. I can us, tell. <laughs> closer, and sometimes star. I gave up on the National Enquirer a long time oh, ago. Oh, you did? <laughs> <laughs> what was the moment where you realized that the National Enquirer was no longer a reliable news source? Well, I think I always knew it was unreliable, so over the years. All right, Kay, so you mentioned that you like to read. What is the, uh, what's the current book that you're reading? I just finished two books. They are Partners by Herman Woke, who wrote The Cane Mutiny okay. many, many years ago. And these were two books about the Second World War, but in novelistic style. okay. I have always been interested in the Second World War, particularly Hitler and Nazism. This, these two books were fabulous. I highly recommend them. One is called Winds of War, and the sequel is called War and Remembrance. Okay. They are great books. So when you're reading, you typically like to take something away. You like to learn. Is that an accurate yes, statement? Yes, I do, although I can also read trashy stuff. <laughs> I mean, I can't hear that and not ask for an example. What do you mean? Are you talking about like the heartthrob novels? No, not those, but uh, <laughs> those are kind of below me. <laughs> no, not really. I'm kidding. Actually, um, I love true crime. Oh, really? So I read a lot of true crime. I watch a lot of the true crime shows. Sure. I just have an interest. My mother had an interest my daughter and granddaughter both have interests in them, so it must be in something in our genes. Sure, you know I can really respect that. Um, the forty-eight hour show where you're you're tracking the yes. first forty-eight, the first forty-eight, and then I've always been a huge fan. My wife gets on to me all the time about the amount of Law and Order SVU I watch. I just really like that genre as well, so I could appreciate that. Well, great news for you, Kay. Uh, I am actually a published author, um, so I'm going to give you a fundamentalism book now. Unfortunately, it's not written in novel form, but there are a lot of great stories in it. And Terrific. the forward is actually written by Travis Kelsey. And you mentioned that you're a big Chiefs fan and have season tickets. So hopefully you'll enjoy at least the forward as you're a fan of the Chiefs. How about that? That'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> you're very welcome. So now you had mentioned, um, we kind of talk about the things that we get into and, uh, one of the things that people are really struggling right now with are politics. You've been in politics for quite a long time, or you were in politics for quite a long time. What drew you to that environment? What drew you to the public sector and serving others? I was drawn to politics, I think, for two particular reasons. When I was in high school, having grown up in St. Joe, 
My father was, for about two years, the chief of staff for a congressman in Washington. So one summer, between my sophomore and junior years in high school, my mother and I spent the summer in Washington. It was a great experience because at that time there was less security than there is now. So we had House and Senate passes. We were able to go into the balconies of both anytime we wanted to, a few days each week if we wished, and also use the Senate elevators and the tram and so on. So that exposure, I think, really had an impact. The other is that I'm the first cousin of Walter Cronkite, who was a famous newscaster, had the CBS Evening News for many years. My maiden name was Cronkite, and my father and his father were brothers. So I was around him some when I was growing up and even more as an adult. So that exposure really also made a difference. And I realized in retrospect that my level of comfort in getting involved politically and being visible as a result came largely from having been around a highly visible person in my family when I was growing up, and it looked good. It looked like a positive, like a big deal. So I never have had the discomfort in being visible that a lot of people have, which will sometimes keep them from getting involved politically in the first place. 100%. Now, when you, I've, I've always, I've always wondered about when you get into politics, when you make the decision that you're going to do something for everybody else, right? And there's some form, obviously, of fulfillment that comes with that for yourself. You feel good, you know, it is a, a fundamental or it gives you joy. So there's that aspect of it. And there's obviously worse things to be selfish about um, in terms of feeding your ego than serving other people. I think we could all find some way to do that a little bit more. But when you first get into politics, you know, it's one of those things where you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and you're really excited about change and helping others. Obviously, you and I both know that there's a lot of red tape in politics, just as there is with corporate America. So what was the epiphany moment when you realized, or did you always realize, that driving change wasn't going to be as simple or as as easy as you would have hoped? I think you realize that early on when you're involved (laughs) politically and you've gotten elected, you understand that many things take a lengthy period of time. On the other hand, I think it's really important to speak up and move forward. I think of Martin Luther King, and I wish I could remember exactly how he said it, but in his amazing letter from a Birmingham jail, which I think is a remarkable document, he talks about the need to move forward and not wait for everybody to come on board. And he's speaking particularly to the ministers in that area who have been preaching the need to go slow. Right. And he was really pushing. And I think that's important that we not use the disharmony as an excuse to not do anything. Oh, my goodness. So what a perfect segue to uh, a hot topic right now. You know, this weekend was horrendous when it comes to mass shootings and, and, and of course, sparks the gun control debate and the mental health debate. And we're always told that there are specific topics that you should stay away from in conversation, right? Politics, religion, and all that stuff. And, And I think really that stems from when you talk about topics like that, people are so opinionated or passionate that ultimately you can't see logic. So for me... I'm not a gun owner. My brother is uh, every, from a small town called Osawatomie, Kansas. So hunting, uh, you know, is, is, is very significant there. Um, I don't feel that anybody should have their Second Amendment rights taken away. And when you think about what happened this past weekend, what I believe is driving a wedge in society right now is extremism, the vocal, the vocal minority of the far right and the far left, Right. And so specifically, uh, what you hear a lot about is the right comes out and they say, it's all mental health. The, the root cause is mental health. It's not the gun, it's mental health. 
And the far left says, no, it's the guns. It's always the guns. It is, it's the vehicle. It's what causes the problem. What I often, you know, just being ignorant in politics, and I told you that before, I walk away from that discussion and I think to myself, isn't, can't we all agree that it takes a really mentally unstable individual to pull out such a heinous act? But figuring out a way to solve for mental health in society and the millions and millions and millions of people out there is far more difficult than just finding a way to put stricter gun laws on, whereas the responsible individuals, the individuals that are hunters or, or that truly find guns uh, a means to fulfill some aspect of their life where they're responsible and they do it the right way, I believe in my heart of hearts that if you're a responsible individual and we put stricter gun laws on, then you're still going to get your guns. You're still going to go through. It's like getting a driver's license or getting a background check. I don't believe that you're going to be hesitant to go through that process because you know that it's the right thing to do. So that is a long preface, Kay, to say, what are your thoughts on just extremism in general? It seems like logic oftentimes is lost in these really heated political discussions. How do you navigate through those situations? Well, I think navigating through them can be very challenging. The struggle that I have, for example, is that on the one hand, I understand the argument that it's important to hear from people who disagree with you. On the other hand, I firmly believe that we have a moral responsibility to stand up for what we believe is right. Sure. And what I believe is right is more anti-gun than would be many people. And I don't mean by that, I think it's a false equivalent to talk about it being an either-or. Sure. It's really not an either-or. Right. I know enough about mental illness, having some background in psychology, to know that the climate that is created in a country is one that can manifestly influence a mentally ill or a mentally challenged individual. Sure. So to say that someone with mental illness is operating in a culture almost in a vacuum is not accurate. 100%. So if I'm going to err on the side of either argument... I'm going to err on the side of thinking we have a moral responsibility to do everything we can to create a culture in which there is less emphasis on discrimination, racism, bias, and so on, which I don't think we have right now. 100%. I agree. And you, and you mentioned the king. Obviously, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, that's everything that he stood for. And he did it the right way. You know, he didn't incite violence. You know, he, inc- he incited um, individuals standing up for what they believe in and doing it the right way to create and facilitate a conversation. And what I appreciate about what you're saying is it doesn't have to be an either or. I think it goes back to that extremist argument. You know, oftentimes the far right, and I just use this, them as an example, the far right says, they're taking away our guns. You know, this is the first step to coming and taking away our guns, which you and I both know is not the desired mm-hmm. outcome. The desired outcome is to create a society where everybody could go to the park and to the mall and to school and not have to worry about potentially a mentally challenged individual coming in and ruining the family's life and everybody around it. So I really appreciate that stance. And it kind of segues into a conversation that we were having before we got on air. I told you that I'm I'm ignorant when it comes to politics. And part of that is, okay, I have no idea where to go to get unbiased information anymore. I, you know, you try, somebody once told me, here's what you do, Paul. You go to Fox News and you educate yourself about the right. Then you go to CNN and you educate yourself on the left. Then you go to the BBC and you find some aspect of the middle and you come to a healthy conclusion that that fulfills you and that you feel comfortable with. Who has that much time? (laughs) I don't have that much time. And so go ahead. I would argue from my perspective, and I think I'm a fairly well-educated person, that we're much more likely to get accurate information from CNN and MSNBC that we're, than we're going to get from Fox News. However, I 
think we have all seen evidence recently where Fox News even is beginning to report more accurately some of the news they cover. So that's encouraging to me. There are facts and there is accurate information that is available to us and without having to go to the extreme of listening half of the day <laughs> to one and half of the day to the other. Sure. That, that to me is unrealistic, and I don't think it's necessary. Good. Well, I greatly appreciate that because I don't have any excess time in my day, or at least that I'm willing to create for uh, educating myself on politics. Now, fundamentalism, again, the fundamentals of a fun and optimistic lifestyle. And this is an amazing topic, and the reason why I was so excited to talk with you about it is because this is something that tears a lot of folks down right now. We get so caught up in our bubble or the Trump train or Fox News or CNN, whatever whatever side that you land on. How do you move past um, allowing politics to get in the way of what gives you strength in life versus allowing politics to give you a forum to really make society better? Like, what advice would you have to folks that really are hanging their hat on or get extremely depressed or or beat down about the state of our society instead of leveraging it as an opportunity to go out and do something as small as it may be in their mind? I think it's sometimes a challenge for all of us to rise above those kinds of problems in society and take some kind of individual action. And yet, that's part of leading a positive lifestyle. Sure. Because it's all, everything is about choice. Absolutely everything. So the glass is literally either half empty or it's half full. And whichever it is, from my perspective, is a matter of choice. You are a master of politics and riding the line in my perspective. I love those. Those are, I think that you mentioned that you have a psychology background. Is that? To some extent. To some yes. extent. But what I take from it, um, so remove that. Mm -hmm. You've been around people a lot in your life. And I think that it seems like you truly understand um, the heart of what makes people go. And going back to the extremism and whatnot, I think what gets us in trouble through these conversations is when we take such a hardline stance and we don't say things like, in my perspective, or based on my experience, or these are just my two cents, and, and I respect other people's opinion, but I don't always have to agree with it. And I really admire that you have the ability to do that. Was that something that you've had innately, or is that something that you learned over time? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, there's a considerable amount of research that shows that females are more likely to be interested in conciliation, reconciliation, more having more discomfort with highly charged arguments and so on. So perhaps with that as some background, I've had the opportunity politically, having served a long time ago, four years on the city council and four years in the Jackson County legislature, and then eight years of, as mayor, to really work on whatever needs to happen to enable people to reach some kind of conclusion that people can live with. Most of the time, I think that's possible. Sometimes, if you're in a leadership role, you have to override what the opposition is wanting sure. and move forward. Mm. So we have a tendency as a society to focus more on what's not working or the things that we don't have or the losses as opposed to the things that, that are. I think that's creating... Uh, in small part to the, the mental health crisis that we referenced earlier. It's, it's, e it's just easy to think about what we don't have and what, what's not working. So when you think about your eight years as Kansas City's mayor uh, and your time on the city council, what are a few of your uh, crowning achievements in your mind? Like when you lay in bed and you're just reflecting on the, th the things in your life that you just are super proud about, what are a few of those things? Well, I'm super proud of my two children and my granddaughter. Sure. Certainly, they come first. How old's your granddaughter? She's 25. Okay. 
And what's living her name? in Denver. Denver, okay. And she is the kind of COO, that's my definition, probably not hers, of a KIPP charter school okay. there. Sure. So she acts as a kind of liaison between the parents of the more disadvantaged children who attend school there and the children themselves. I love it. So he, she really loves to do that work. So going back to your question, when I was on the city council, I certainly had the opportunity to learn a lot. It was a very difficult four years because we had two firefighter strikes where the police took over the firefighting, which was a challenge for everyone. This was from 1979 to 1983, so wow. it was a lengthy period of time ago. And then we had a portion of the Kemper roof collapse and a portion of the Hyatt. I remember that. Lobby area, the skywalks collapse. And that was horrific. Over 120 people were killed. It was uh, quite an experience to go through those four years to be involved in all of that trauma and pretty up close to all of it. I think I learned from those experiences that it's not easy, that there are unanticipated events that occur that you have to be prepared to respond to. So it was a an important learning experience for me. As mayor, what I feel best about is the opportunity to have appointed hundreds of people to over 100 boards and commissions many of whom played instrumental roles in our being able to move a great deal forward during those eight years, including our downtown revitalization. Yes, ma'am. So whether it was the chair of Parks and Recreation Board or the TIF Commission members, the list goes on and on. Those people played key roles in our being able to accomplish so much. So I am eternally grateful to them. So uh, Larry is in the studio today taking photos, uh, an immaculate job as he always does. Did you notice what Kay just did there when I asked her what she's most proud about of her crowning achievements and she immediately put it over on everybody else? I didn't hear you say one thing that you did. And again, it just goes back to uh, your kind heart and and uh, you know even your uh, your mention of the fact that the female the study of female psychology you know you get to a place where you're just you're really about emotional connections and yes. and find I want to know what you're proud of something that you did this is the opportunity for you to say you know what I did it and I'm excited about that what I'm proudest about in terms of my own behavior was being a trustworthy, relied-upon cheerleader Yes, for the entire eight years. That's an important part of what a mayor does. And obviously, you have to be engaged in thousands of conversations and setting agendas and a lot of public speaking and so on. And yet, that determination that we will get this done came in handy multiple times when there was increased resistance, whether it had to do with the Sprint Center or the early planning for the Performing Arts Center, certainly the Power and Light District, H&R Block, the list goes on and sure. on. And yet there needed to be a mayor who understood what her role was, took it on, and maintained that throughout the process. You have no idea how much it excites me to hear you say something that you did fantastic because you are one of the most kind-hearted, authentic individuals I've ever seen and uh, an individual that has done a whole lot for the city of Kansas City. And so um, I hope, and I know that you do, recognize uh, the joy that you help and have helped create for others. And I think it's important for you sometimes to verbalize that. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for uh, providing that, me that experience. You mentioned challenges. You know, yes. it doesn't matter whether you're in life or, or, you know, corporate America, if you're a firefighter, if you're the mayor of Kansas City, 
we're faced with challenge each and every single day. And the question isn't whether challenges are coming, it's what do you do to get through them when they do happen? So when you think about your eight years as mayor of Kansas City, and what was your what was the time frame in which you were mayor? Uh, 1999 to 2007. Awesome. 99 to 2007. What was the biggest political challenge that you ever faced, and how did you work your way through it? Probably the most unanticipated challenge <laughs> on my part was in the early weeks and months when I first went into office, there was quite a lot of negativity toward me among many of the black leaders really? in the community. What do you think that not, was driven by? I'm not... I never have quite figured it out, although I'm confident that I appeared to some as this white woman from the suburbs sure. who arrived on the scene. Although, from my perspective, I had been involved for decades in the civil rights movement and so on. So out of my naivete, I assumed that that gave me the credentials. Sure, right. And I was wrong. Right. Now, that was not true of all black leaders because I had worked closely with some. So they had already built a set of relationships with me we were all comfortable with. So it took months for me, primarily in private conversations, to make it clear that I really did know what I did not know. Sure. And that I was someone they could work with and so on. So gradually, almost everyone came around, and I'm very proud of the fact that by the end of the eight years, without almost without exception, I think I had built really strong relationships in the African-American community. Sure. So I really feel good about that. I would agree with that. And we've come full circle. Another thing that that you uh, are taking credit for. I greatly appreciate you saying that. What I also appreciate about what you just said is um, there's a lot of folks that allow ego to get in the way of acknowledging the fact that we don't know something. So whenever you learn a new skill or whenever you come on to a new job or whenever you're trying to figure out how to get through struggles in life, um, I don't know if you ever heard this, but there's like a four-step process. There's the 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 unconsciously incompetent aspect. That's the if you've ever driven a stick shift, you you're looking at your mother, or your father, or Larry, or whoever it may be, and they're driving the stick shift, and you're sitting in the passenger seat, and you say, "I could do that. That looks easy, right?" Because we don't know that we're stupid at that point, right? Yeah. But what? But you that's how I learned how to drive. So <laughs> I'm. You can exempt me from that. <laughs> Well, what ultimately ended up happening, though, Kay, is you got in the driver's seat and you realized that yes. it wasn't it wasn't as easy as we once thought it was. So now uh, it, be it became very, very conscious to you that you were incompetent. Now we're consciously aware that we're incompetent in this particular aspect. And that's what you just relayed. Now, over time, we start to get better and you become consciously competent which means that you're getting good at it, but you still have to think about it. It's like the first time we were ever on that hill and we looked mm -hmm. in the rearview mirror driving that stick shift and we say, I got this, but there's a car behind us. And you're like, oh crap, mm -hmm. I, got, I got to really think about what I'm doing to ensure. And then ultimately it, it culminates in being unconsciously competent, which means that we're so good and we don't have to think about it. Now, Counterintuitively, a lot of folks think that that's where we aspire to be, unconsciously competent. We're so good that we don't have to think about it anymore. But unfortunately, that's what creates a lot of problems because that's where we start to go on cruise control and, and things get very monotonous. So we start looking for fresh ways or new perspectives or whatever it may be. So ideally, we really want to stay or remain in this consciously competent phase where we're always looking at other people and understanding what value they bring and, and, and putting a new perspective on what we're doing. The reason why I bring this up is because I feel like you're a very conscious leader. Uh, you're a very conscious individual just in society. You are looking around and you're, you're taking in your environment and you're listening to what people are saying and you're leveraging that in your relationship with them. And I admire that a great deal. I feel like my love affair with Kay Barnes is coming out of here because I've said I admire her a great deal many, many times. Let's talk about let's talk about things completely unrelated to politics. 
You've had the opportunity. You'd mentioned that you're a season ticket holder with the Kansas City Chiefs and have been since the 60s. Yes. There's a, a, an amazing picture of Lynn Dawson and the Kansas City Chiefs uh, from the 60s here up in the Charlie Hustle meeting room. And you said, I was an original season ticket holder. And the pride and the joy that, that came over you when you said that uh, really shined through. You then mentioned and saw a poster of Michael Jordan and said that you lived in Chicago for four years. Through your travels, through the political landscape, through your relationships, who has been the most interesting individual uh, or one of the most memorable experiences uh, in which you've shared with somebody that you've met? Oh, my. Well, as mayor, I had the opportunity to meet a a lot of interesting and, in many cases, well-known people. I ran for Congress in 2008, right after I went out of office as mayor, ran against a very far-right conservative incumbent and was defeated. It was an amazing experience, though, and I did have the chance to meet national and prominent Democrats at that time because they were very supportive of my campaign. Like Barack? Are you talking about Barack? Yes, I did. (laughs) I was around him uh, a few times. One that is memorable for me is when he was uh, running for president. It was fairly early in his campaign, and I had the opportunity to have uh, about a 10-minute conversation with him, just the two of us. Sure. That was delightful at the time and certainly meant even more uh, later on. I also had the opportunity to be at some fundraisers when Michelle Obama was the keynote speaker. I had the opportunity to introduce Joe Biden at a couple of events. Wow! So all of those experiences and uh, a number more really helped me understand, and this had been earlier reinforced by my relationship with Walter Cronkite, that famous people are by and large just people. You and I. When you are around them. And I remember observing both Walter when I was growing up and also Hillary Clinton when she was running for president. I must have been in 2008. And in both cases, when they first came into events, they wanted to go to the kitchen to say hello to the workers there before they ever came out into the area where the guests were. I love it. I loved that myself because they were both very sincere about it. So it wasn't like grandstanding. They did it in a very um, unobvious way. Right. So all of those kinds of experiences stay with you over time. 100%. I've never had the pleasure of meeting any of the individuals that you referenced, but I can now confidently say that I had a moment with former KC Mayor Kay Barnes. Did you ever get the opportunity to meet Donald Trump like before he got into politics or any of that stuff? No, and I have no interest in doing <laughs> okay, so. <fair> <laughs> I'll pass I, on that. I love it. So uh, tell me about uh, a, a, a sports figure that really you had a, a moment with or you met them. Because, again, I saw the joy that you got or that you garnered when you started talking about the Chiefs and the Bulls. Did you have an opportunity to meet any uh, athlete that you really looked up to or admired? I've had the opportunity to meet uh, many, again, over the decades. I remember in the 60s when um, my first husband and our two young children and I were living in a neighborhood that was three doors down from Chris Burford, who was one of the uh, stars on offense for the Chiefs. And we got to know... Uh, Chris and his wife at that time and family uh, pretty well. And I'll always remember whenever I would see him on the block in his Bermuda shorts <laughs> and the scars on his oh knees goodness. and legs from surgeries sure. and injuries, 
because at that time, of course, you didn't have the kinds of surgery they're able to do now. Right. It was much more invasive at that time. It was a miracle to me that he could even walk. And I think I did see him maybe 15 years ago, and he was having difficulty mm. walking. And I knew why, because I had looked at those <laughs> legs more than once. The unfortunate thing about that, too, is the one thing that you can't see are the mental scars. And uh, I have had the opportunity to connect with um, several athletes through you know, the podcast or being out in uh, philanthropy or whatever it may be. And oftentimes, um, you know, they're willing to open up. And you could read it, you know, in, in any public forum. They're very open about talking about how, you know, whatever organization, it were, maybe it's the NFL, they really don't care about your health. They care about the work product. And, and when we talk about mental health, so many of these individuals that lay their health on the line uh, to entertain individuals like us, and they live lives that, you know, no individual would ever desire, but you're not thinking about the long term when you sign up for that stuff. You're thinking about the short term, of course. Yes, that's true. And it's really sad when you see those issues pop up later in an athlete's life. Sure. Now, uh, you had mentioned about your run for Congress, and it was an unsuccessful campaign, but one that uh, brought you a lot of memories and quite the experience. Walk us, walk us through what that experience was like running from for Congress, because that's something that I guarantee you, uh, I mean, I would venture to guess nobody listening to this podcast will ever be able to say that they ran for Congress. So what was that like? It was an amazing experience. It was one in which there were so many positives, and the huge negative was the fundraising. Mm. It is unbelievable the expectation in terms of raising money. And although I had been in office for 16 years total and had certainly raised money in other campaigns, this was almost nonstop for 18 months, six days a week. I was on the phone several hours each day calling people, asking for contributions. Many of the people I called, I had never met. Many lived in other parts of the country. It was so rigorous and so difficult. I really hated almost every minute of it. And at first, I thought, well, it's just me. But then... When I was in Washington and did have the opportunity to, during the campaign, meet and interact with a lot of elected people there who were already in Congress, I remember one congresswoman had been in office a lengthy period of time from Illinois, and in our one-on-one conversation, I said something about how rigorous the fundraising is, and she said to me, don't you just hate it? She said, one day I had to have a root canal, and I was so excited because it meant I would not have to make any phone calls that day. So it is amazing. I'd rather have a root canal than going out and fundraising. You know, I could somewhat relate to that on a far lesser scale. Um, so I am on the, I'm a board president for NOAA's Bandage Project, and we support pediatric cancer research. Uh, it's a 501c3 that was literally created by a six-year-old boy that was going through cancer and understood the power of a Band-Aid and how it created uh, a sense of hope and courage for kids going through the struggle. And one of my biggest challenges whenever doing anything for Noah's Bandage Project is the ask, going no matter how emotionally connected to people or, or to the charity people are or to you and your campaign or whatever it may be, I think part of it is because of who you are and you create relationships without uh, a desired outcome in mind that we struggle going out to the people uh, that we've generated these authentic and meaningful interactions with to say, I need your help. Uh, that's something I know that I can say confidently about myself. I hate asking others for help. We talk about this all the time because this gentleman is amazing at what he does. And he was actually a, a catalyst for uh, me getting into public speaking and finalizing my website and all that stuff. And he gave me the confidence to do that. But really what he taught me is sometimes 
you have to be able to will to be willing to say, you know what, I can't do this on my own. So uh, I acknowledge how difficult that is, and I could definitely relate uh, to that experience on a far lesser scale. Now, forgive my ignorance. Uh, I have one last question, and then we're going to do a, a rapid fire uh, a series of questions on things that give you strength. So. Last question that I have, when going through uh, the run for Congress, again, forgive my ignorance, is there a debate forum where you where you actually have to debate your uh, opponent? Yes, there are periodic debates, and certainly that was true, not only when I ran for Congress, but virtually every office I ran for before that. So my profession separate from my political involvement ever since I was in my 20s, has been as a public speaker, consultant, trainer, teacher in human resource development topics, such as time management, stress management, communication skills, supervision, leadership, those topics. So one of the real advantages I had in campaigns and when I was in office as mayor was that I had a lot of experience in public speaking already. So that was the least stressful part of what I did, which was terrific because sure. I know some people really agonize over it, that. Right. And uh, I didn't. I, I liked it. I could tell. And you're tremendous at it. And I think that uh, minus the writing style and the author, uh, the, the author's uh, delivery or whatever it may be, Based on what you just told me, I think that you're going to like the content in the Fundamism book because that's everything that I've done over the course of the last 10 years. You know, I've been a consultant and public speaker and all that jazz. And all of those topics uh, that you reference, time management and uh, leadership. And, and uh, I don't know if you've ever taken a personality assessment. Um, there's a gentleman years ago by the name of Richard Stepp, and he created Bird Styles uh, or associated bird styles with personality types. So in the book, we talk about Richard Stepp's study, and it's dove, owl, peacock, and eagle. Of course, doves are known for being emotional beings, well-connected, emotionally connected, uh, and they agonize over decisions of, of hindering other people. And so as such, they move very slowly, but mm -hmm. they're very, very warm. Owls are individuals that are wise and intelligent. They, they thrive in detail and structure, an individual that I am not at all. Uh, but as such, they are somewhat cold, not with ill intent. It's just that sometimes they're so wrapped yes. up in the pros and cons and weighing everything out that they're not necessarily present. And as such, they move somewhat slow. Uh, the peacock is obviously an individual that thrives in uh, the connection and energy with other people. Um, bright feathers, colorful, uh, center of attention, public speakers typically. Um, we move very, very fast and are somewhat warm. And then the E is the eagle, the natural born leader, the individual that typically has a plan and will do whatever it takes to make sure that it happens. And as such, they move very, very fast. And somewhat like the owl, they're, they're cold, but not with ill intent. It's just that they have something to do and they don't have they time. They have a game plan. They have a game plan. <laughs> they don't have time to manage everybody's feelings because you yeah. can't. So knowing that, what would you define yourself as? Knowing that also we have secondary, you know, I, I myself am a peacock, so I'm a peacock and eagle, but I can also flex. I'm a very emotional being, so I could be a dove as well. Do you feel like you have a primary uh, bird style? I think I identify with what you just described about yourself because I don't think I am singular. I think I can move into a leadership role when appropriate. I'm very comfortable being a follower if that is appropriate to the situation. I love it. The reason why I love it, Kay, is because we've all heard the golden rule, treat others as you prefer to be treated. But that's very counterintuitive when it comes to communication. We don't communicate with others, or at least we shouldn't, as we prefer to communicate to them as. We should always be conscious of what their style is and navigate their style. Because if you do that, then you could create really fruitful relationships and meaningful interactions. Oftentimes you walk away from an interaction and you say to yourself, what, what crawled up Larry's rear end? I just don't understand him. I don't know what got into him. And maybe, just maybe, if you're truly a self-reflective individual, you would ask yourself, first of all, I wonder what Larry's going through in his life that, that made him present himself this way today. Or really honest individual would say, I wonder what I'm going through in my life that allowed me to see him this way. Because maybe, just maybe, or what I did to create that environment, maybe I was communicating to Larry as a peacock would, because that's my primary. 
but he is not a peacock at all. I mean, he is very much an eagle, an owl. I mean, he is he's always in the details and thrives in that. So if I come in and I'm very excitable and I'm talking about all the stuff that I do, which he's laughing because he knows that that's how I that's how I am. I might walk away from that and say, he didn't buy into anything. He didn't do anything fun this weekend. I just don't get it. Well, in reality, it's not that he didn't do anything fun. It's just that I was talking to him as a peacock and he's an eagle slash eagle or us eagle slash owl. And he really just cared about what was on the agenda for today. The reason why I bring all this up is I think that to be successful in public speaking, to be successful in the political sector, to be successful in creating meaningful relationships, you have to be highly aware of the individuals that you surround yourself with and the interactions that you have, because people are giving you cues all the time if you're present. And if indeed you're present and you're listening to what people are saying deliberately and with intent, then you might find yourself a lot happier than most. I think one of the more uh, simpler way to think about those differences in people, and it doesn't quite get as specific as what you were just describing, I think the the whole thing about introvert and extrovert really comes into play more often than we realize because so often the extrovert is verbalizing as he or she is processing whatever the situation is and is thinking out loud. It sometimes drives the introvert crazy because the introvert doesn't want to hear all of that. Just give me the answer. On the other hand, the introvert processes often internally and then will give you the answer while the extrovert is assuming that the other person is being secretive, is holding something back. Yes. And... Even that very basic set of differences can create real issues in relationships. Uh, 100%. And I think, you know, you mentioned uh, a really strong topic that gets in the way, too, or you assume or make judgments. And, you know, years ago, a gentleman by the name of Sing San, uh, 666 AD, third patriarch of the Chinese dynasty, said, uh, if you wish to see the truth and hold no opinion for or against... And oftentimes we see in people what we want to see. Oh, well, I don't understand why Kay didn't connect with me. Or I wonder why she didn't verbalize that. Or she clearly doesn't like me. Mm -hmm. When in reality, to your point, they could just be processing things differently based on who we are and, and, and how we've come to this place. Because experience plays a significant role in that too. Maybe they used to speak up and talk out, but they've been beat down so much over time or they were in an abusive relationship or whatever it may be that now they don't have the confidence to do it anymore. Okay, I have enjoyed this so much that I don't want it to end. Uh, However, with respect to your time, I'm going to give you a couple of rapid fire questions. First thing that comes to your mind, I just want you to spit it out of your mouth. So favorite concert that you ever went to? Uh, Michael Crawford. In uh, Chicago, he had the lead in uh, Phantom of the Opera when it first came out. Incredibly fabulous performance. Love it. What kind of music do you gravitate towards? What genre? Probably having grown up with a mother and father who loved 1940s music. It's amazing, but I still can sing to the words to some of those songs that I heard when I was five, eight, ten years old. Sure. It dates me, and yet that's an honest answer. No, I love it, and I can relate to it because I woke up every Saturday morning with my mom cleaning house listening to Motown. And yes. so I, to this day, I love Motown. Uh, sometimes when I walk out on stage, I'm playing Motown. Uh, I found myself the other day in a rental car singing Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It? And had a, a beautiful, authentic, genuine, organic interaction with the car next to me, listening to Tina Turner at the same time. So I think that our experiences growing up obviously create some of our likes and dislikes as well. Uh, greatest vacation spot that you've ever went to? Oh, boy, that would be tough. Uh I love to play golf, so maybe Palm Desert and the opportunity to play golf every other day for a month. Okay. And coming up six weeks this winter. <laughs> You're like the groundhog. 
<laughs> yes, I am. Are you good at golf? I've never met anybody that said I'm good at golf. Well, I started out when I was 10. I had an eight handicap when I was 20. Oh, my goodness. And then I had a 12 handicap when I was about 60. And it's not as good right sure. now, but I'm still working on it. How often do you go out and golf? Oh, probably two or three times a week. Wow. Uh, most memorable uh, sports experience? Probably living in Chicago when the Bulls were winning the whole thing year after year after year. That was really exciting. And because my father had been a high school football and basketball coach, I really know both sports pretty well. Sure. So I could easily appreciate the unbelievable effort that the Bulls put forth and their success. Love it. Last question. If you could sit down with any leader uh, or any figure, public figure uh, ever in, in time, who would it be and why? Eleanor Roosevelt would be one of them. And why? Because I think she came through some really difficult times in her early life and in her 20s and 30s, and she was so ahead of the curve in many ways related to social issues and dealing with racism, dealing with all of those issues that others were just beginning to identify. So I really have always admired her. Sure. Uh, you probably don't admire her as much as I admire you after this one hour together that we've spent. So um, are you still consulting? Are you still out public speaking? If somebody wants to learn more about you uh, or potentially invest in your services, is that an option? And where would they go to find you? My uh, role primarily at this time is as the Senior Director for University Engagement with Park University. Oh, okay. So reaching me through Park would be uh, an avenue Fantastic. by which they can do that. Fantastic. Anything that you would like to close with? Any aha moment that you had with life? Any advice that you would give to individuals looking to get through challenging times? Or maybe they just want to gravitate more towards the things that lift them up and don't know how. Any advice that you would give to individuals like that? I think it's important, as I mentioned earlier, to recognize that almost every experience we have in life involves choice. And certainly the aftermath of really difficult circumstances, it still is a choice to move forward, to take as positive a stance on life as possible. Sure. 100%. Well, I greatly appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come meet with us. Uh, we have a national audience, and although you are a former KC mayor, everything that you said relates and resonates across every single demographic, every single political platform, every single uh, race, every single city. And I greatly appreciate your vulnerability and willingness to open up about not just uh, the wins in your life, but some of the challenges as well. So we wish you a wonderful day. And to you, the Fundamism listener, as always, we hope that you'll go out and create a little fun, joy, and fulfillment in your life. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that somebody right now could use your help. So take some time out of your day to find time to lift up others in adding joy, fun, and fulfillment to theirs as well. As always, have a blessed day and deuces! Deuces!